1: And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at slash acast.
2: Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History.
1: Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. I'm still a little taken from the fall of Assyria in our last episodes.
2: Uh, I think we have another empire up and coming that'll
1: keep us busy for a long time. A couple, actually, right? Uh, They sure will. Uh, We will also see that Assyria is not quite dead yet. And I will actually make the argument that Assyria survives this decade. Uh, It's not a lot of us here but something all right well you'll have to tell me about that well, this you've been great you
2: dan's been uh, we've been really doubling up on the research so i'm actually going to learn some stuff that dan's going to teach me hopefully yes <laughs> we have some uh, housekeeping to do yeah we got some notes from people i appreciate it it's great i got one from here that says hi bernie i love the work you do together with dan and i have learned so much just by listening to your podcast fan of history You don't happen to remember what episodes where you guys read out when Ashurbanipal is angry and describes how he destroys some city which he thinks has wronged him. I think it's Dan that pretends to be Ashurbanipal. I thought it was the Battle of Susa. And he was correct. That was the one, and it was in the 640s. And I responded. "Oh, that's Which episode? Uh, I don't recall at the very second, but it was one of them in the 640s. I guess it's 112. I would go with that. And also, that's from Linus from Sweden. Sorry. Yes, and the Swedish pronunciation is Linus. Linus. Yeah, good. I have to ask you something about Sweden. I read a thing. It said that um, in Sweden, people, like, if you go to someone's, like, if I came to your house in Sweden, I wouldn't be allowed to eat there. Only the family could eat. Is that
1: true? (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Uh, Actually, at some point, it probably was, but that was a long time ago. (sighs) Huh. And well, it seems to be part of a, a social media campaign to, like, put Sweden in a bad light. So, it's interesting that it came up, actually. And there's been a few other incidents hmm. with, the, like, old Swedish traditions that are brought into social media light must be as that. something that is happening now. Must so, be. it seems to be a co- coordinated effort to talk crap about Sweden. Uh, it's probably Putin. Well, that's good.
2: So, if I ever do come to visit you, you'll let me eat at your house?
1: Yes perfect because <laughs> i don't want to starve <laughs> but you'll probably get soup strumming what would i get soup strumming is that a type of food that is a a, a fish that oh, I... you leave uh-huh. in the ground until it gets really bad oh. <laughs> and then you eat it and drink a lot of liquor with it do you like do you eat that oh yes it's a, delica- <laughs> a, a delicacy delicacy, a delicacy yeah yes it, but you said it gets really bad but it doesn't taste really bad Yeah, it's sort of a test of manliness. Can you eat this crap? (laughs) And uh, it's uh, mostly in the north. So uh, when I was living in the north, my my ex-wife came to me and said, Oh no, they are forcing us to eat sushi at this party. Uh, You must come with me and help me. So I was like, I know how to do this, baby. I have done it before. So I forcefully ate one piece of this. (laughs) <laughs> and then she tried it and said, wow, this is quite good. And then she and a six-year-old girl oh, ate all the rest. <laughs>
2: That's the best story.
1: But it, it's uh, completely horrible. You can find a lot of YouTube videos with Swedish people forcing oh, Americans to wow. eat this.
2: Oh. Wow.
1: wow. Sörströmming. Sour herring, maybe in English. Yeah.
2: I don't like sour things in general. I don't like herring.
1: In, in Sweden, we have several words for herring. So, because there's a lot I of herring you. here.
0: Ooh.
2: Wow. I wonder how... Maybe you do a special episode on how that tradition got started.
1: Yes, I, uh, I'm i actually... Uh, Brennan, our old host, might come over here soon. So, I might force him to oh. do it. Oh, please do a video of that. <laughs> That'll be great.
2: We'll put that on the YouTube channel. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing.
1: We have another... Um, Uh, input here from uh, b baker on youtube all right and he remarked on one of our youtube videos and i thought this was interesting so uh, we're putting it here and i told him we would so b baker says uh, quote i'm a Cimmerian, and i know the history of my people i'm also a trained historian the word Cimmerian is from the patriarch name gomer as in gomerian the Sumerians were the allied confederate group of Celto Germanic tribes in the Caucasus. The Assyrians were a brutal violent Semitic people closely related to the Babylonians. The Sumerians feared them and assisted the Babylonians and their allies in taking down Nineveh. The Samerians assisted in that war as mercenaries. The Sumerians saw the constant Churn and Empire building going on to the south of them. They saw and feared the constant raw ambitions of the Persians, Hittites, Lydians, and Babylonians. As a result, it moved them to start to leave the Caucasus. Basically, the place was indefensible, no natural defenses. They could be overrun at any time. They pulled out of the Caucasus completely about 100 years after Herodotus wrote about them. The Cimerians had always been a confederation of Germanic Askenazim and Celtic Riphthathians. The two casin groups separated as they poured into Europe. At one time the Celts, as Gauls, were by far the more numerous as they had 50 millions of Gaulic Celts at the time of Julius Caesar. However, he killed most of them using Germanic allies. He likely killed 10 million Gauls, a flourishing civilization, likely the most pleasant place in the world at the time. That was about 5% of the world's population at the time. It was centuries before Celtic numbers recovered, end quote. Actually, the Simerians will be defeated and run out of the Middle East in our story in a couple of decades. Yeah, I disagree with the Caucasus being indefensible. There are pretty high mountains in the Caucasus. But uh, yeah, that was that. You had one more.
2: I do. I found this. I don't know it was a couple of months old probably, but I thought it was because I love this guy. He's hysterical, Gary, you know, from the history of the Bible. He said, one of the shows, he had a new bonus episode co-authored with the exuberant Bernie Mayapolsky of the Fan of History podcast. I read a great article the other day, I forget where, about how many people find podcasts on ancient history not merely educational, but comforting, sending them to long-gone words. Listening to Fan of History is like having your great aunt bring over an inappropriately spicy falafel soup with sour cream on top while you are recovering from long COVID. It shouldn't work, but it does. (laughs) (laughs) gary (laughs) i love him
1: thank you gary okay so your great aunt (laughs) is coming over with an inappropriate (laughs) spicy falafel (laughs) soap with sour cream that's fair and you're recovering from long covid (laughs) and it's great thank you (laughs) all right
2: i guess we'll get down to business pretty soon here huh
1: you had a shout out as well right i do
2: yeah i'll shout you out now too this is a, a, a A fan, Jason Saunders, is a good friend of a friend... Well, he's a son of my friend, so he's my friend. And um, he says he's a big fan. He listens to our episodes all the time. So thank you, Jason, and hello.
1: Thank you, Jason. woo We are going to do this decade, the final one of the 7th century BC, uh, in this fashion. We'll start with China, go on to Greece, but Greece is starting to get hard to keep separated from the rest of the events. Mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about... The Middle East, 609 to 605, mainly the period that Nabopolassar has left. And then we'll talk about his son and all his deeds, Nebuchadnezzar II. And we'll end with an overview of the world in 600 BC. And then we will finally talk about the invention of coinage. Coins! Yay, that's some money. And this is at least five episodes, probably more. Yeah,
2: let's hope so. Because it's summer here. We, we, we're we recording the day, the first day of summer in the Northern Hemisphere. That's the recording
1: here. Oh, it's definitely summer here. It's been
2: summer yeah. for a while, I think. I mean, today's, isn't it? This is the actual, I mean, it's, um, what do they call it? Meteorological summer, right? The first day of summer is June 21st. Uh-huh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Summer solstice, the longest day of the year it was last night, yesterday.
1: Oh, that's true. It's so... Uh... So bright up here, you have almost no night. And a couple of miles north of me, there is no night anymore. Amazing.
2: That's cool.
1: But the sun comes up at uh, 3.30 a.m. here. Wow. And it's not dark before that. Wow. That's pretty cool. It's amazing. Yeah, someday I'd like to check that out too. But I am so far to the north. We are happy we have the Gulf Stream, but otherwise this place would be covered in ice still. Ah, well, let's keep that Gulf Stream going, because if we get climate
2: change, we may lose it. (laughs) (laughs) that would suck yeah big time
1: we'll have to all move to live with Gary Australia let's go to ancient China the place to be
2: yeah I have a few things here yep on ancient China we have these names man I'm just gonna do my best too but they're kind of so anyway 607 BC we have the death of King Kuang not King Kong King Kuang of the Zhou dynasty so his personal name was Ji Ban he was the 20th king of the Chinese, the Zhou dynasty, and the 8th of the Eastern Zhou. And his father was King Ching of Zhou. So he was he was the one who basically all he did was uh, bury his brother, or his father, I'm sorry. That was, oh, his, yes. that was his main goal, his main achievements the last time we talked about him. He was succeeded by his brother, King Ding, and... When I was gotta say, when I was a kid, I had this thing called a King Ding. It was like a little robot toy. When I used to stay work at my father's shop, like if I had to go there, like we'd go go play with the King Ding. (laughs) I never knew there was actually a real King Ding.
1: It sounds vaguely sexual.
2: It does. It does sound like that. It reminds me that I had a a a guy. Sometimes I do business with people in China, and sometimes they send me their. I don't know. They translate your name, and the the guy's name was uh, Golden Wang. I was like, you should definitely check the names first before you. That'd be me though. If I was like, oh, let me make a Chinese name, I'd probably come up
1: with something like that. Not know what everybody'd be laughing at me. So <laughs> uh, we must remember that the uh, Eastern Yo means that uh, it, they are powerless. They are puppet figures of the Chinese state, but they do uh, rule it in some sense. Yeah,
2: exactly. They're they're like it's like the reverse. The vassals are actually the ones who are in charge. There's a couple, there's a little, little we could talk a little bit about what, about King Ding and what happened here. So, so, um, some, at some point King Ding, he's, it's probably around this, our time here too, uh, he sent an official named Wang Song Man to the, present gifts to the, to Chu, um, and he met Duke Zhuang. So, Duke Zhuang was very ambitious. So if you recall, we talked about how the, you know, the Dukes were jacking for power, and, um... At some point, um, according to a well-known story, probably an invention of the Warring States period, though, he, the, the Duke of Chu asked the messenger about what's the weight of the legendary nine tripod, tripod cauldrons, which was like a euphemism for seeking ultimate power in China. So I'm going to talk about that. So he basically asked, the story goes, he said, how much do they, do they weigh? Which is cool, kind of interesting here, because... Um, this gave rise to a Chinese expression, to inquire about the ding in the Central Plains, which means you have great ambitions. So it's like an idiomatic expression. In, Chi- in China, An idiom that's known as a chengyu So like an idiomatic expression, maybe something like you'd say, like cut off your nose to spite your face. That's an English one or different things like that. So when you say if to inquire about the ding in the Central Plains, in Chinese, that means someone who has great ambitions. <clears throat> I was wondering, did you have any like, is there any Swedish idiomatic expressions like that? I'm sure there are. I can't think of a, a single one right now. You put on the thing, right? I know. I was Googling them last night. Like, what's a good idiomatic expression? Um, so, anyway, and a ding. What's a ding? I don't think we talked about the nine cauldrons in the past. If we did, what? Tell me.
1: Hey, I, I thought of one. <laughs> okay. Uh, in Swedish, we have something called a brass clap, uh, it's, a, it's a note. Where you say that you were forced to do something. Uh. And it's from the, the Stockholm bloodbath that I actually did a couple of videos about on the Fan of History YouTube channel. And I have made four mass murder podcast episodes about.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist
1: In my uh, Swedish mass murder podcast, so in the in the time before the bloodbath, it's a gigantic murder of a lot of uh, nobles, and there is uh, all these nobles are killed because they rebelled against the king, mm-hmm. uh, the Danish king, and they wrote a document saying how much they hated the Danish king, but this guy called Brask, who was a bishop. He oh. put in a, a small paper in his seal where he said, they forced me to do this. <laughs> so when all the, uh, all the people were accused and were about to get executed, he oh, said, check nice. my seal. They forced me to do this. And they opened his seal and found the note. Oh, see? That's
2: interesting. And they
1: spared him. So that's a brass clap or brass clap.
2: That's how they are. Though. That's how these idiomatic expressions are, though. So this is one that came.
1: Very hard to understand if you don't know that story. So tell me about the nine tripod cauldrons.
2: Yeah, the nine tripod cauldrons are sort of like the symbolism of, that's, if you went, that's the symbolism of, you know, the kingship. So they were in Zhou, the, the, the Zhou king had possession of them, so that means you're a king. So they're a collection of ding. So a ding is a cauldron. And they, they were supposedly cast by the legendary Yu the Great of the Zia dynasty of
1: ancient China. So they were like... That's a, a pretty much legendary dynasty. Correct,
2: right. So they existed, though. As far as we know, these things existed, but they just pre- didn't realize where they were... Um, they didn't realize, you know... They, they just said he made them. The first notice ra- writing of them is in like the seven, late seven... I should say the early 700s. But they were already around. So um, they were even dur- you know, during the Shang Dynasty. They're written about in the Zhou Dynasty, but they say that they had them, and then they say they were made by... Them. So anyway, there are these... Um, giant cauldrons. So, they they symbolized that you had the power. But there's there they, they were used for um, rituals, right? So, members of the there was like strict regulations of who could use them for rituals. So members of the scholarly gent- gentry class, they were allowed to use one or, or three of the cauldrons for, for sacrifices and stuff. Ministers of state were allowed to use five of them. Um, vassal lords like Chu and them, they were allowed to use seven. But only the sovereign son of heaven, meaning the king of Zhou, was entitled to use all nine of them. So they used them for ritual sacrifices to the ancestors from heaven and earth. And it was, you know, a big ceremonial occasion.
1: Okay, so I get it. First, I thought you meant a, a cauldron with nine legs, but they only have three legs and there are nine cauldrons. Correct.
2: Correct. There's nine of them, and you're allowed to use right. And so if only the king could use all of them. So when he asks about the weight of them, but we're, I'm going to tell you about the weight of them because they're freaking heavy. So because these dingers, they they're they're cauldrons. They used them in China. They they some of them had four legs, but these are three legged ch- cauldrons. And they stand on legs, and they have a lid, and they have handles. Um, they make them originally. They made them out of ceramic, so they're very ancient. You know, used for cooking and things like that. They, so the records of the grand historian say that once you the great finished taming all the floods that engulfed the land, he divided the territory into nine provinces and collected bronze for tribute from each one of them. And then, so he cast the nine metal cauldrons. And legend says that each one weighed around 30,000 caddies, which is equivalent to 7.5 tons. So these are gigantic cauldrons. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, I think it's like a part of the it's symbol. It's symbolic, but like if it was like, oh, I have the symbolic like necklace, you know, anybody could just steal it. But these things are so heavy. Like, how would you just if you were to steal, you know, nine seven point five ton cauldrons, you're gonna probably have to come with an army.
1: And the, these cauldrons were around during the time of the Shang Dynasty, mm-hmm. so they have been in use for at least a thousand years by this point. Yeah, amazing. And then, um, okay, so he he wants the cauldrons, he wants to be the king, but he doesn't act on it in this decade. No, he doesn't act on it. There is isn't going to be
2: something's brewing, there's going to be some war, but he does not act on it. It was, and Chu, Chu, as I may have said, and I'm pretty sure we talked about it a little bit, is they were sort of considered half civilized, they were ethnically and culturally a little different than the rest of um China, but they were still part of the system. So, you know, like, their their prince could come and, you know, use seven of the cauldrons. But so it was very, like, you know, sort of like being uppity to say, what's the weight of the twelve cauldrons,
1: you know, the nine cauldrons. So that's a bit of a cheeky attitude from his, from his side.
2: Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, is going to play in a, imp- Chu's has been playing an important part, Chu and Jin, and they're going to continue to play an important part for a long time. I think pretty much all the way up to the warring states period when it, you know, boils down to just a few states. I mean, this, this goes on for centuries, this, you know, this business in China, until they completely unite.
1: I bet it does. It certainly does. We may even get through it in this podcast at some point. <laughs> I'm going to throw in a little more about the Far East in this episode. Oh, awesome. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, Japan and Korea. Cool. It's mostly legendary stuff, of course. But this period is the reign of the legendary first emperor of Japan. Jimmu, oh. uh, so he, he's supposed to reign from 660 to 585 BC, which sort of is the first <laughs> thing that uh, tells you that this is probably not true, because in the year 585, he is 126 years old. Yeah. So good work, Jimmu. Yeah, Jimmo, yeah, we. I think we
2: talked a little, didn't he like, he like, he's named, when they named an island Japan, because it looked like a dragonfly.
1: Oh, well, maybe, maybe we mentioned him. I think
2: we might have, but yeah, then there's like a ceremony in Japan to him, but he's old. He's, he's getting old now. He's like 100.
1: <laughs> that raises the question, what is really going on in Japan in 600 BC? And the problem is that the earliest written record about people in Japan at all are from Chinese sources in 57 AD. Yeah, wow. Where they pretty much mentioned that there is an island in the ocean where a couple of uh, barbarians live and they are very primitive and uh, we don't need to care about them. Yeah. But there is something happening in Japan in this period. And it's extremely hard to date because uh, Japan has a long Jomon period and it ends maybe in 1000 BC with a uh, hunter gatherer culture. And they seem to be yeah. receiving visitors at some point. Farmers. Yes, during this time that we have talked about in the Fano History po- podcast. Okay. And it's the Yayoi people who come from the Asian continent and they are bringing farming. But exactly when this happens is still mm-hmm. highly debated in Japan. And they are not so friendly that they bring writing. So we don't have any writing. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of work has been done to try to see when this happens. And the last radiocarbon evidence suggests that it might have happened as early as okay. somewhere between 1800 BC. But the spread of the Yayoi in Japan and their culture is a slow process. So it, but it's, it's probably going on here in 600 BC. Yeah, I would agree, and it's a. Sl- I think it's a slow
2: process because they're farmers, and farmers don't move around as much. You know, once they get a spot, they're good, and then it's you know, I need a generation to get older, and you know, to need more land, then they move, and then so it takes a lot longer than hunter gatherers take a bigger area.
1: And they seem to start on northern Kyushu island, okay, and then spread onto the main island, and they they have bronze and iron weapons even, Huh? and they do bring tools. Uh, probably initially imported from China and the Korean Peninsula. And they gradually replace the Jomon culture mm-hmm. over a long, long period. Yeah, at least you have a bit more population to farming societies or hunter-gatherers. Yes, but exactly when this, these things happen is very unclear. And uh, uh, we, we probably need to have uh, Jesus born before we can talk more about Japan.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because like I said, there's no writing and we just have like archaeological evidence and genetic evidence. Did you see any of your research how there's something about the, I think the farmers have different, there's the two groups. One has a different kind of earwax than the other. I didn't hear that. Yeah, there's a di- like one's dry earwax and one is like more wet earwax. And it's still into Japan today where they could, some people like genetically have a like a drier earwax and other people have a more of a moist earwax. And it has to do with these two cultures. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There's a cool video, you know, I'll look and see, maybe we'll bring it up. I'll do some housekeeping for the next time I'll find it. There's some interesting stuff I read about that, but it was a while
1: ago, and I was just reading stuff. Okay, so in 57 AD, we'll talk about Japanese culture again, (laughs) but before that, we'll talk about Japanese earwax. I knew you were going to
0: say that.
2: Sorry, all Japanese (laughs) listeners. They'll know what I'm talking about, though. It's definitely a thing. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) I'll let you go on. Please
1: give us iTunes (laughs) reviews. Yep, <laughs> but as I mentioned, the Yayoi brought stuff from Korea. So what yeah, is seriously. going on in Korea in 600 BC? It also it's also a little hard to uh, uh, to figure out. But there is Chinese records that tell us that there is a kingdom in Korea, and it's called Gojoseon. Okay, and uh, in uh, about 300 years, the Chinese will write a lot more about this kingdom and in that time its capital will be where north korea's capital is right now uh, however the founding legend of Gojoseon claims that uh, the country was established in 2333 bc by a guy who came from heaven and was named dangun that sounds probably right there is no archaeological evidence for this but he is an important person in uh, korean tradition but this kingdom seems to be around. There is also another uh, legend, which is uh, which was popular, but is now kind of debunked. <laughs> there is a, a Shang Dynasty prince in the 12th century BC called Gia. Yeah, and he moves to Korea and founds Gija Joseon, pretty close to Go Joseon. So uh, in pre-modern Korea, this was yeah. a proof. That the Chinese civilization was in Korea, but it was kind of Korean. So this, this Dangun character from 2333 BC, he, he installed the Korean mm-hmm. culture. But this prince from the Shang dynasty, he improved it. But it seems now that both these characters are legendary. But we do have hard evidence that Goju Seon was a Korean kingdom in 600 BC.
2: I mean, these stories are like they have like they're, they're just like a sort of like humanize or make a simplify like what probably happens. You know, is like Chinese pe- people from China were moving into this area
1: and their cultures were mixing and that kind of thing. And we won't get any more news about Korea until the Han Dynasty, which is in uh, 194 BC. So uh, no more news from Korea for a long time. Unless they find something dug
2: up or something.
1: Yes, so if you knew anything more about ancient Korean or Japanese history, let us know. Please. I'll handle the earwax part, but anything else, just let us know about <laughs> All right. And I think that wraps up our first episode, and then we'll go to Greece. All right, so yeah, the next time we, we, we talk, we're going to be talking about Greece. Do you have any information about Greek earwax? I don't. I don't, but I, I will... I won't look that up. We'll
2: just leave that out of it. Sounds good. Because that's actually it is actually an actual thing, <laughs> this Japanese
1: earwax thing. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, if you're not careful, this episode will be named Japanese earwax. I, I was, ju- you know what? We're totally going to say I was literally
2: thinking the same thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be in the notes somewhere. So.
1: If you're uh, super interested in earwax, uh, please uh, sponsor us on Patreon. Yeah, <laughs> Patreon.com. Search for fan of history. It will help us go overboard. Yeah, again and, and again. Know, it's
2: like a f- spicy falafel soup. And we will uh, check our Facebook page out. I always post. Um, I post uh, different stories. Oh, and welcome to a lot of new Facebook fans. If you guys are listening, we, we got a lot of new Facebook fans. Fans, so um, keep interacting. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap it. We're going to wrap this one up. And we'll be back next time in two weeks with Greece. Greece. And stuff is happening in Greece. Oh, yeah. A lot of stuff is happening. They're, they're moving around. As they always do. Yeah. They're busy. All right. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks. And see you next time.